Apple Music Classical elevates your listening experience like never before. Enjoy a catalog with over 5 million tracks and find just the one you want with a powerful new search. You can even Shazam classical music pieces playing around you, then locate them directly in the app. Save your favorites and add them to playlists or explore expert recommendations for key composers, instruments, periods, and more. Apple Music Classical, the app designed for classical, included with select Apple Music subscriptions, now in the App Store. Garrett McQueen, and this is Triloquy. Thanks so much for tuning in this week. It's good to have y'all back for another week, and it's good to be back here in Studio G. I had a couple weeks over in New York, and it was incredible, I gotta say. If I had to use a word, I would say incredible. I'll talk a little about uh, some of my uh, experiences there. I've already shared a little bit with y'all chilling at the block party last week. If you tuned in last week, running into friends that I know. Yeah, it was definitely a good time and it proves just how incredible the city is thanks to the people. I know being in the big buildings and all that sort of stuff is a thing, but being around the people really is my favorite thing about being in the city. Shout out to everyone who uh, hates New York or folks for whom New York isn't exactly your place to live. I get it. Listen, I understand. It's not a place for everyone, but more and more I'm finding it to be a place for me, thanks in part to the people there and to the conversations that are happening in the arts in their own unique way. I'm going to share a conversation that I had with a couple of New Yorkers this week, Damian Norfleet and Lara Kaminsky. They both recently took part in a program produced by Ensemble Pi, Pi as in, uh, you know, 3.14159 or whatever, Ensemble Pi, <laughs> the topic and inspiration uh, for this concert that they took part in were banned books, pieces of literature that either are banned or were banned once upon a time. Damien, Lara, and myself had a great conversation about the notion of banning any media, including books, and the conversation just sort of went from there. Damien and Lara did a lot of the talking this week, <laughs> which makes my job easy. And honestly, I think makes your listening experience a little more dynamic than usual, not just me preaching at y'all. So I look forward to sharing that conversation. I'm also going to share an example of how uh, frustrations in arts equity uh, can be dealt with in a positive way. You know, getting into a little bit of my Buddhist practice, I'll share that with y'all at the very end. But first, I wanted to talk about one of the many incredible people I got to visit while in New York. There are so many stories that I could tell y'all, as I've been saying, shout out to Lisa, a black trans woman doing her best out here in light of her boyfriend's passing. Uh, it was an honor to visit her up in the Bronx and to support her. Shout out to Walter Granberry, a black man up in Harlem, who is one of the most pro-black Buddhas. <laughs> I know I can't wait to feature him on Triloquy one day. Uh, shout out to Kevin and Donna, who I love like family. They're in Washington Heights and Donna made me promise to bring a flute next time I come to visit, which I will 
Will, so many incredible people that I get to spend time with up there, um, extended family in many ways. But there's one man in particular who I wanted to make sure I told y'all about this week. His name is Ted Comet. He's 99 years old, and he gets around without a problem, much better than many people way younger than him physically, mentally, and, and everything in between. Um, so Ted he lost his wife about 12 years ago to Alzheimer's, but he's dedicated the rest of his life to making sure that her story is told. Her name was Shoshana. She was a Holocaust survivor, um, and she relived some of her trauma through her art. So once upon a time, she was riding a train. This was back during World War II, and there were fighter pilots bombing the train as it was going down the tracks. So as the people were jumping off the train into this field of flowers to try to save their own lives, the pilots in the uh, airplanes were circling back to machine gun the people who were trying to escape. So Shoshana's father told her to just lay down in that field of flowers and the flowers would serve as their gravestones. Well, miraculously, Shoshana survived. And decades later, she took up tapestry in New York City after she and her husband, Ted, moved there. So tapestry art. She worked with a loom. Uh, so she developed her talents at that loom and eventually re created the scene from that field of flowers decades earlier. There's uh, an image of a, a dead child with flowers and airplanes. It really is something to see. And after she was done, uh, Ted said that she started crying hysterically on top of the fact that her arm stopped working. She couldn't use the loom anymore. They assumed it was some sort of injury, but after visiting several doctors, they all said that the issue was psychosomatic. So Shoshana and her husband Ted went to the correct type of doctors to help her deal with that psychosomatic response, and she was eventually able to use her arm again. It was quite uh, miraculous in itself. So you might think that she would have gone back to creating more tapestry art, but she realized that facing her trauma was her remedy, really dealing with the fact that she had blocked out that violent memory and uh, and applying it to the way that she lives her life today. That's how she got the movement in her arm back. So she went back to school to study therapy and spent the rest of her life helping others get over their trauma by facing it, using their trauma to expand their lives. It's very similar to this idea of turning poison into medicine, as uh, Nietzsche and Buddhism teaches. Uh, so I mentioned uh, that she passed away over a decade ago, but her husband is sharing her story with as many people as he can to help other people realize that your limitations can often be overcome by facing your own traumas. This was really impactful for me to just sit here and learn this story and to look at all of these tapestries. It made me think about uh, what some of my personal traumas have been and how we all can, in a way, be grateful for challenges as a means uh, to grow ourselves into something greater. I know that's not everyone's vibe, but it relates to this week's guests in a really cool way, I think. So banning books can most certainly also be something traumatic, especially when the subject matter of those books highlights lived experiences of marginalized people. Uh, Damien's musical work, Damien Norfleet, his musical work was based on The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison, which is a book that I think everyone should check out. And Lara Kaminsky unpacked a book by Azar Nafisi called Read Dangerously, The Subversive Power of Literature in Troubled Times. That's what her musical work was based on. So I'm 
I'm going to go ahead and uh, let us jump into this uh, dialogue without trying to uh, unpack it anymore. But it's just a really conversation um, about marginalization, about trauma, about action, and how all of this uh, ties into the arts. Uh, to get us into this chat, I've been given permission to share a little music uh, from that ensemble pie concert. Uh, this is a snippet of Damien Norfleet's Toni Morrison, Bluest Eye-inspired work to get us into the conversation. I hope y'all enjoy uh, this music and hope y'all enjoy this chat with myself, Damien Norfleet, and Lara Kaminsky of the New York-based Ensemble Pie. We hope and we pray that you with eyes of blue, we hope you love yourself. You with eyes of blue, we hope you love yourself. You with eyes of blue, we hope you love yourself too. He believes that he's beautiful. She believes that she's beautiful. They believe that they're beautiful. We are glowing, 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 we are glowing. You with eyes of blue, we hope you love yourself. You with eyes of blue, we hope you love yourself. You with eyes of blue, we hope you love yourself. You with eyes of blue, we hope you love yourself. You with eyes of blue, we hope you love yourself. You with eyes of blue, we hope you love yourself too. You with eyes of blue, we hope you love yourself too. The word traditional is so problematic right now, right? Because in America, we propose to have so many cultures and traditions. So it's like which which tradition gets to be the one? Because Sure, maybe our music, our, our music is not only out of maybe, uh, I dare say, antiquated Western European practices, but it's also not traditional like, as far as like African musical traditions. It's also not traditional Native American music traditions. So I don't necessarily have a problem with the word traditional. I just feel like the word traditional needs to be either we need to add it to our list of hyphenated words we like to use or just be more specific. But I think I know what you're asking. And, and my answer would be, no, it doesn't bother me at all, because that is kind of the point of what we do is to try to um, break new ground in ways, you know. I mean, the fact that we only commission living composers and stuff adds to that. So, no, that doesn't bother me. No, it doesn't bother me at all. Yeah, Laura, I'll, I'll ask you the same question. And what I'll add to it is, uh, your experience and your trajectory as a musician. Do you feel like this type of work is in alignment with your general trajectory as a as a creative, or have you found yourself branching off into ground that you weren't expecting? I, I'm going to start by speaking to you about something you said in your first question to Damien about being outside the box. And I think the way I think about this and about Ensemble Pi, but how I think about most of the constructs within which we operate as artists and as citizens is that we always keep thinking that there are these boxes, but I actually push this challenge back and say, don't think outside the box, there is no box. Mm -hmm. So for me, um, with Ensemble Pi, Yes, they tend to play traditional Western classical instruments that were mostly European, but they don't always. And they've incorporated a lot of instruments from other cultures and other parts of the world, and they've integrated them as, you know, as needed for different kinds of projects. So it's not about the instruments. I would say that a unifier is that everybody is trained and reads notated music 
but they also know how to improvise. And that's not true of what one would think of as a traditional classically trained ensemble, because a lot of people who have that training are not able to improvise and they're scared to improvise. So that's already something that puts this kind of traditional ensemble outside the box. Another thing is they are not a normal configuration of instruments based on what are standard groupings for chamber music of classical Western traditional music. So they're a mishmash of instruments. Um, and they're specifically 20th slash 21st century because they incorporate so much percussion. And that is not something that was found in chamber music of prior centuries in the Western tradition. Now, I lived in West Africa for over a year, and there was percussion in everything. And what was different was when there were Western instruments integrated into that. So I think all of this cross-pollination is what makes it all exciting and rich. But I think the thing that's most unique about Ensemble Pi isn't about what they play, what instruments they play, or how they were trained. It's how they think about building programs. And I think that that's the thing that's most important. And that's what my great affinity for them as an ensemble is, is rooted in, as well as the fact that they're fantastic musicians. But what it is, is that, and this is a question I ask when I give lectures about, you know, why do we make music and what is the purpose of the arts is you ask a group of young musicians, well, you're finally going to get your debut recital. What are you going to perform? And most people don't know what they want to perform. They say, well, my teacher told me I should play this, or I know how to play that piece. And I sound really good when I play it. And, and I just look at people who think that way and say, that's not a reason to make music. The thing that's unique about Ensemble Pi, and it, and there's many ensembles that were founded in the 80s and onward that really embrace this notion of programmatic, thematic, contextualized um, concerts. So they enter into every single project they do with an extra musical idea. It's not about a piece, although it could be a piece motivates like, I love this piece. We're going to put it on this concert. What's this piece about? And then build a theme and then commission new work or find new work, other works that exist that relate to the theme. So how they build their program is not just this piece sounds good next to this piece. And if they're going to play that piece, then it would be good to pair it with this one because of who's playing or what style it is. It's not about that. It's about this other, this intellectual idea. And so there's, and I'm not saying it's a pedagogical thing, but it's a storytelling. So even in pieces that have no text, and I mean, Damien's a, a singer and an actor. So, you know, even when you're not involved, the pieces tell stories and they're always linked. So every concert is about one idea. And it's usually an idea that's challenging or criticizing or asking questions or lamenting or pushing for social change. Yeah. And, and one of your recent 
uh, projects has been on the theme of literature, specifically literature that some consider controversial, some of which that has even been banned. Before we get into uh, the specificity of this program, Damien, why do you think it's important to engage or revisit this idea of banned literature, the practice of banning books? Uh, book banning. So the, I'm going to start at the end and then maybe backtrack a bit. So, you know, our country is kind of in this, um, hmm, trying to think of a nice euphemism, but I guess I don't need one. We're in this like, weird rise of fascism, mm. right? So it's kind of hard to separate our book banning from the things that happened in other fascist countries and nations, like more specific, I guess most specifically Nazi Germany, right? I mean, Nazi Germany had that whole thing when, you know, it's, how did they try to preserve the race? What did they call it? They called it like the, the Herrenrasse, right? Which I think is just German for master race. And they just kind of went through and systematically got rid of all publications that weren't in alignment with their proposed ideology they wanted for their people. So I guess that's the part about book banning that is so scary to me, is that all it does is reek of that in my mind at first. But then the other thing is, is that, you know, and I and I spoke about this a little bit on uh, another interview that Laura and I did together, actually. And it's, it's what is the purpose of book banning right now in 2023? And it's, um, you know, you talk to some people or you listen to some people who are in support of these kinds of actions and they quickly parrot things like, you know, it's going to corrupt our children and we want this kind of certainness and we don't want that and we don't want this. And I mean, that's just ignorant and silly. I mean, especially when it comes to the things they're talking about, like homosexuality, bisexuality, asexuality, everything, all the sexualities that aren't necessarily heterosexuality mm -hmm. and in other just lifestyles um, that aren't just necessarily choice. And it's, it's then if it's not choice, if it's not about prohibiting your children to become something or then what is it? Right. And there's other kinds of aspects and it goes to me, you know, it's, they're, they're the first things of like fear and control perhaps, but then there's something a bit more nefarious happening. Um, that goes to the erasing of cultural stories and I dare say history. I mean, even like last year, what Texas was literally trying to, I mean, the school board made it to the state legislature about removing slavery from school. And then they got to some weird agreement to incorporate some euphemism called like involuntary mislocation or something, something really silly. Mm -hmm. But we all knew at the heart of it what it was. And, you know, then it also comes back to something as basic as our, our treasured First Amendment. It's funny when that comes up, you know, it's, it's always, I don't know, it's so funny how we use it, but we forget about the First Amendment when it's something about, oh, well, this is a story about a marginalized group or a, a smaller group or a, a non-Christian group or a non-European uh, derived group or a not, I mean, whenever it's these other kinds of groups, we all of a sudden forget about the First Amendment. And it, it's just um, unfortunate. But the reason why I think it's books in, in particular are troubling if they're going to start doing away with books is books in my, in my life 
were literally my first safe space. Mm. It was a space where you could read a story, fiction or nonfiction. And, you know, you had this space within your own mind and soul to read it, reread it again, think about it, decide whether or not you didn't agree with it. And, if, and depending on your age, you know, then you ask your parents, what does this word mean? What is this idea? But it's also a way that you can, you know, I feel like we're also in this weird space in our country where you get attacked from whatever direction just from publicly thinking about a topic. You know, and in and books provided me back then a way of, of again having a safe space to think about things. But it also does the opposite. Books are way more personal. There's something about absorbing something with multiple senses. I mean, listen, I love these electronic reading devices we have and all that kind of stuff too. But there's something, and I'm not trying to be too idealistic about it, but there is something about actually tactfully touching a page, running your finger down a page as you do it, turning the page, holding the book. You know, I remember falling asleep with a book before. Mm-hmm. And then the, and then the you also have the access of, of giving that book to another. And it's a physical gift. But then it's also all the things that books represent. Books are forever. Books are things that not only the reader gets to read and reread and ponder, but the author does the same thing. I mean, as opposed to, well, first of all, let me just put this out there. You know how my ass is. When I get on a tangent and it's going the wrong way, <laughs> please reel me in. But of course, there's something about that. I mean, books aren't these um, statements off the cuff. They're not public speeches. Books, authors labor over these. They specifically choose these words. Like these ideas are formulated, reformulated, edited, edited. I mean, this is, when you read a book, it's exactly what they meant to say. And I think there's something very, very specific about that, that you have this reference. It, it works as a reference material. But going back, and I know it's not just about banning books for children. That's where I go the most, because I think that's where it bothers me the most. But it's it's in general, right? It, it's 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 just the, fas- it's, it's the fascism of it all, mm-hmm. right? It's like, how dare you say what information people are allowed to have access to? Because am I, you can't help but go through something... Like, if you don't want to read it, then don't. But the idea of saying no one's allowed to read this, no one even has access to this. This author who writes in this medium isn't even allowed to make a living. Because don't forget, there's also that aspect of sure. it. You know, it tends to backfire on them a bit. And it always kind of has. And I'll get back into the history of book banning, or at least my research to it a little later when we talk about some other things. But it, it it's just, there's also... And then I want to hear Laura's thoughts on this. But there's also like this this, um, symbolic statement of it all. Attacking something like a book, which is just literally the voice and recorded voice of people and scholars and just uh, any group of people. It's it's bold. And it's uh, I I don't think the whole slap in the face of it all can also be ignored because it's something so basic. Because banning a book isn't even banning the actual information anymore, right? I mean, it's it's not like the only access we have to some of these things is just a public library or is just a school. Everything's digital now. Everything is this. Everything's a movie. I mean, it's, it's all of these things. So there's something about it that also, to me, feels like a symbolic gesture. It's another way of telling people, you know, it's an assertion of authority in a lot of ways more than it is about preservation of some kind of societal standard of something it, to me it really it comes more down to this assertion of authority 
Um, and that's just kind of where it's been resonating with me, especially after our concert when I've had a few more opportunities to hear directly from a few other people, their thoughts, and me just to sit with it, um, both with the books on my shelf and just with the music that was created and the conversations in the space that was created. There's just something incredibly insulting about banning the banning of books in 2023. And I think it, I don't think it's accidental that it harkens back to, you know, uh, some societies and countries of old, not that fascism is of old in our country, but I think you understand what I'm saying with that. There's, yeah, it, to me, it's, it's the authority assertion that is the most problematic for me. Laura, I wonder if you agree with that, especially considering there's so many things that we can just find using the internet and, and, and other digital mediums. I, I think that the the focus for this project on books is that, and I and I understand, you know, Edith Corman is the founder of Ensemble Pie, and it's generally from her very rich brain that the concept for a program emerges, and she's deeply engaged in you know, leftist politics, anti-fascist politics, anti-racist politics, her entire life. And she is um, an immigrant to this country and her parents were immigrants to their country and they were, you know, Jews who suffered during the Holocaust. And so the the specter now of seeing fear-based bullying, which is what I think this is all about, by a class of people who are desperately clinging to power because they're greedy and they want to have to try to suppress people from thinking creatively and independently so that there can be a, a better sharing of the common of the wealth that exists that is enough for everybody this fear based it's a political act based in greed and fear and you can't suppress ideas. And the thing that I think is so sad about us as a species is that even these very sad people who have seized this power, who are attempting this, what will ultimately be a failed endeavor to stop people from learning and thinking, that's a creative act on their part. It's just a nihilistic creative act. Right. But it goes back to the fact that we're all creative human beings and it, we are sparked by ideas. And these are people who are fear filled. So they're scared of ideas that may challenge them or anyone else to disagree with them. So because they have power, they're trying to stop everything. We all know they're going to fail. But when I think of the hundreds of thousands of little kids who were trans who would have found some solace in reading a book or somebody who's a first generation immigrant who came here without documentation and had to live in fear as they worked their way through well being welcomed legally into the system and what that was about that's helpful and we all benefit from that mm -hmm. as just as we benefit from a novel that you know, just takes us on flights of fancy that takes us out of who we are. Like, I don't want to read books about people like me. I want to read books about other cultures and other people and other places and other parts of history, because it makes me think about what it is to be human and how to live in the world. And so 
the notion of these, you know, maneuvers to stop people from being curious, they're do- they're going to fail. It's just really sad that in the short term, while they're doing what they're doing, lots of people are being in the immediate, you know, imperiled. Mm. I, I want to pick up on one thing, Laura said. I mean, a few things. I, I, this is why I love talking. First of all, I met Laura not too long ago, and I think we've quickly developed a very interesting relationship, which I enjoy greatly. But there's two things I wanted to, to, to say. And I do think that they are ultimately perhaps going to fail on, on part of their their agenda or project. But it's it's the, it's in the present where they are absolutely succeeding for a moment. Because the moment that they ban a book about trans youth, the dra- the, dam- the damage has been done to that little that little trans kid who receives the powerful message that I'm not okay, right? And I think that's the part that's the part that just it 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 makes me feel a lot of ways that I do all the kinds of meditation and things and try my best not to feel like I try not to really lose hope in, in America as a country and people as in general. But I do love the fact that you really pointed out. Um, Laura, how books aren't just about identity and for people to see themselves. It's also a way for other people to discover the other worlds. I think that's a great point that you made. And it, it, so it's not only at the, de- you know, the detriment of these people who are receiving messages that it's not okay to be who they are in the right now, like in the now, right? It's, it's also hugely detrimental to people who are actively trying to learn about these other cultures and societies. And maybe these books are the only place they can see them or, or learn about them because our news media may or may not cover it, depending on where you live and what's your news media station of choice. Sometimes these books are the only ways you have access to. And I, I think that's a really good point you brought up, Laura, about it's not just for the people who are no longer seeing themselves in these books. It's for the other people to have opportunity to learn about those cultures. I think that's a fantastic point. I mean, I mean the, the notion of somebody writing a book and, and or composing a piece of music or choreographing a dance or making a painting. It's it's a completely, on some level, what we do as creative artists is completely useless, mm. right? Nobody is fed, nobody is made healthy, no, you know, no, nobody's life is saved, except that it saves lives. Right. And and it's an essential, it's like if you are a creative generative artist. It's essential to who you are. Like you can't be or do anything else. And what you're doing, you know, people say often, you know, oh, artists, they're so narcissistic. They're so self-absorbed. They're not. They're about the most generous people that ever exist because they're plumbing into the depths of what it means to be a human being. And, you know, why? how do we get born? Why do we die? And what do we do along that journey? And reflecting upon that in whatever way they want to do it, whatever their medium is, whether it's through brush on canvas or physical motion, you know, with dance or a bunch of words that make coherent sentences. It's about trying to understand human existence and to be brave enough to live in that space, to do that work and then share it and let other people be touched by it and challenged by it. That's an enormously noble and generous act. And I'm not talking about whether it's good art or bad art or who it's for specifically. Those are different kinds of conversations, but it's just that the, 
the notion that there is a group of people whose purpose on the planet is to share this thing, this creative endeavor about who we are and whatever the specific of the story is, that's really scary to some people who don't want to ask that question and don't want to know. So with all of that in mind, I wonder, Laura, if you could speak to uh, what brought you to the uh, Nafisi that was the basis of of your work and sort of what inspired you to you know move forward and not just reading in the the literature but creating something from it. So so actually, I mean, it's actually I, I thought about this and and I think Damien will have a different story about how he chose what he was going to make his piece about. When Edith approached me about this project and she said, you know, there are 2,500 books that were banned in 2021, and I want you to choose from one of those books. And here's a list of the books that I've already pre-selected with which I want to build this concert, and I'd like you to write a piece in response to it. And this is the entire um, configuration of musicians that you can choose from. And so the first thing she did was she put a restriction on me. She put me in a box. Like you have to choose from these players and these books. And it's like, I don't want to do what somebody's telling me to do. <laughs> so I said, okay, I have to think about this for a while. And I mean, I've read so many of the books that were on her list. And it was just like, I felt I couldn't comment, comment on any of them because they were already perfect. And I, I would have just been heartbroken. Like I didn't know what to do, but I also didn't want to be told what to do. So I started thinking, well, who has written about these issues of freedom of expression and repression of or suppression of culture? So I started thinking about some of the writers and philosophers and political leaders, thinking maybe I'd find an essay that would inspire me. And I was at, uh, in the airport waiting for a flight to go to a production of one of my pieces, which is often, in fact, I will add something. I have an opera that's about being transgender and we're doing a production of it in the South in a few weeks. And we had a meeting, not the meeting was about some of the logistics, but the entire conversation drifted into what's the security if they decide to blow up the theater? Mm. Like, that, do you see what I'm like? I'm living in this realm. We've had protests before, but we're living now in an open, I mean, this is an open carry state. And somebody could just walk in and say, well, this is an opera about transgender people. There's going to be a lot of trans people in this audience. We're going to kill them all. So we actually are having safety training. Anyway, when I, so I was in the airport going to a production and I was, there's a great new strand bookstore at, um, is it LaGuardia or JFK? I don't remember, maybe in both. And I saw Read Dangerously and I went, oh my God, this is Edith's idea. And I opened it up and I was just completely compelled. And the reason this book spoke to me is about that personal creativity that I spoke about. She could have written an essay. This is an Iranian woman who grew up in Tehran during the revolution. Her father was imprisoned. She came to this country went and got her graduate degree and is a professor. She's a writer and she writes novels and essays. And what she, she was in, she lives in DC and 
it was the beginning of the pandemic. And she, like many of us, were crippled, not so much by the pandemic, but by the president mm. and the government in power and all of these things that we're seeing the horrors as they've unfolded in the last few years. And she was she felt that this country was at the precipice of where Tehran was before the revolution. And it made her really think about, well, what is a free society and what would hold her? And so she she said in the preface to the book that during the years that her father was imprisoned and she was in this country, they had huge correspondence. And sometimes they were like, hi, dad, I went out for dinner last night and, you know, saw a movie. And sometimes it was about these deep philosophical, human, political, social issues. Her father's deceased, but she structured this book as a series of letters to him, reflecting upon her fear at what she was seeing in this country, because it was recalling what she grew up with. But she didn't just talk about it from the emotions. She shows different authors from history, from different perspectives, and analyze their work. So it was like a literary critique and a personal creed occur to her father in the context of what, what does it mean to have ideas and how do we have a free society? And, and the fact that she's taking Tanahishi Coates and James Baldwin and Margaret Atwood and Ray Bradbury and 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 welding together different pairings of writers and analyzing their books in a letter to her dad about what are the human truths. It just blew my mind. It, it, I mean, the brilliance of this conception. And so I asked if she would let me. I bought her the book and said, take a look at this. This is what I want to write about. And I don't want to use any words in my piece. And then I also knew that my suspicion was that some pieces were going to take from the texts and some would use words and some not. Some would be sung or spoken. But I didn't want any words, partially because I'm writing so many operas now. I just needed to write an instrumental piece. But I also had this feeling that some of the pieces would start out and then there would be like the crisis of the piece where everything was suppressed and it would end up in darkness. And I, as off, I'm a very real pragmatic pessimist who's really an optimist at heart. So what I chose to do was start the piece with the three instruments that I chose, clarinet, cello, and piano, being suppressed. So we muted the insides of the piano by filling the piano with books. And we took the book cover of the Nafisi book and cut it up into strips and wove it through the strings of the cello. So it muted the sound and then stuffed pieces of the book cover into the keys of the clarinet that the sound came out of. So the piece starts with these people struggling to express themselves and they can't get their sound out, but they keep pushing because they have to speak. And finally, it gets chaotic and they rip off their shackles and they unbind themselves. And as I said to Edith, who's the pianist, when you take those books out of the piano, think about taking the bricks out of the Berlin Wall, what that must have felt like. Mm. You cannot suppress ideas. 
And so the piece starts off repressed, suppressed, subjugated, and then the human impetus to express and be free and communicate wins. But it's not happy. Like it's a sort of, there's a melancholy and there's an anger within the beauty of the piece because we shouldn't be doing this. So that was that was how I entered into Azarna Nafisi, who I was I spent like six months trying to track her down. And I finally got through to her and she was so excited about this whole project. And she wanted to come from DC to New York, but she couldn't rearrange her schedule. But we're going to send her a recording of the concert. And she's she was just thrilled and delighted about it. So I felt like we've made a little family now of of some of us involved in this project. Damien, what I'm thinking about is the fact that uh, there is a lot of overlap between the Nafisi and uh, the Toni Morrison that you selected, but there are also very pronounced differences. You can't speak to Toni Morrison, you know, any anymore. Unfortunately, this isn't a, a relatively contemporary piece of literature. This was Toni Morrison's first, so it's been out for a, a long time. I wonder, you know, what your journey was like considering the differences that I've highlighted, especially considering that The Bluest Eye is a novel that more people would be familiar with than not. Yeah, The Bluest Eye is, um, it was Toni Morrison's first novel. She wrote it in 1970. Um, I think it's fair to call it her seminal body of work. I think it's, it's I mean, it's it's astounding. If you, if, if you haven't read it or if your listeners haven't read it, I really just recommend that you do read it. Um, I, I also want to comment on one other thing about Edith that that, that is so wonderful about being a, a member of Ensemble Pi. She's actually very open to wherever ideas come from. You know, she's very generous that way. And I'm not sure where the book banning idea actually originated. I mean, we've been talking about it for a while. I know I said it pretty early on. It's one of my passion projects. It's like reparations now. That was definitely, if, as you know, Garrett, you spoke to her about that one before. She's very passionate about reparations. But I think our, like, our violinist, uh, I think, actually kind of was the genesis for the, our, our immediate past concert. But Edith is very open that way. And everything becomes a discussion. And with that in mind, <clears throat> Before I, we actually, before Edith actually announced, like, yes, this is what we're going to do next, you know, because she gets all these ideas and then she does kind of make the decision about which one we're going to do. Um, I, 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 before it became an official concert idea, and it was just me musing, I actually didn't start with The Bluest Eye. I actually started with a few other books because I, I tend to kind of start in this weird macro place and everything gets distilled down to smaller things. <clears throat> and I couldn't help but, like, remember you know, the Bible was once banned in, in several places. Um, Shakespeare was banned in several places uh, throughout time and still is occasionally. Um, but even something as, as current as Harry Potter was banned as recently as 2019, right? So going through all of those things, I came back to a conversation that actually I had with you last, Garrett, and this is what actually made me um, kind of come to this more an idea that's more present with me. And our, during our last conversation, we talked about um, activism in general. And, and I remember sharing a sentiment with you that um, I didn't exactly know how I felt about my art as activism. I, I was having these, this weird identity crisis of, of, of really doubting whether or not, for me, it was doing enough. You know, I mean, I remember sitting in my Harlem apartment 
and literally hearing people braving the pandemic and police violence and everything else happening. But they were going to be out there marching because they physically had to do something, have their physical voice heard, not not an, a literal voice heard, not not uh, an artistic one that can be open to different interpretations. They wanted a very specific message to be understood. And I feel like that's the, for me, as an artist that also works in activism, right? There's, for me, there's that line that I, I keep towing where you do want to create something with enough space for people to enjoy art like you're supposed to enjoy art and perhaps take what they will from your work. But then my activist side, is like, oh no, you're going to hear exactly what I want you to hear because chanting obtuse messages does not always work mm -hmm. just in the pure world of activism. You know what I mean? If you're going to say something to your congressman, you can't give them some kind of piece of poetry and hope that they get it. Sometimes you have to be very direct. So whereas as an artist, I feel very much like, um, as, like Laura in some of those ways as an artist, but I, it wrestles with the activist side of me sometimes. And maybe it's just where I am in my life. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like happen, happen to be a gay black man living in New York City throughout, you know, I lived through stop and frisk and all these things. So it's really hard for me sometimes to see past the immediacy of things, which brought me to Toni Morrison. Yeah. Um, I grew up in Texas and I am a product of the te Texas public school system. And I can honestly say I had never heard of a Toni Morrison novel while I was actually in school. It wasn't even until Oprah Winfrey, I know, isn't that crazy? Um, but it wasn't until um, Oprah Winfrey produced Beloved that it even entered my spectrum. And I used to be embarrassed to say that until I realized this isn't a reflection on me. This is a reflection on the public education system in our country, specifically Texas for this one. Um, so I immediately knew, um, I think I want to do something on Toni Morrison. And it, it, and it was both incredibly disappointing um, and elating to see not only was uh, Toni Morrison's uh, seminal work, her first novel, The Bluest Eye, on Edith's list that she was suggesting to people, but it's also on the ALA's list of a book that is just the most frequently banned. You know, it's just, it's commonly banned. Like this is only like one year, or maybe two years in the last decade where it somehow didn't make the top three banned books. It's always on the banned book list. But um, there, there are a few things about the book why I wanted to read. A, it's Toni Morrison, and I felt like my education was lacking and my my humanity was lacking and my ex my exposure to American literature was lacking, not having her work be part of it, you know? I mean, she is what, the second woman in America ever to win the Nobel Prize for literature? Definitely the first African-American woman. I think we only have three. I think another one just happened to win in 2020, another woman. Um, and that was like, you know, they're always like 30 years apart. So, I mean, the fact that you can, and she's won every other award one could possibly ever want to win. I mean, it's ridiculous. So all of those things to say aren't to qualify the quality of her work, but she is such a juggernaut of American literature. It's absolutely insane that she is not, not only should she not be banned, she should be on every school curriculum. I mean, it's a, it's, it's ridiculous. But going back to the specifics of, of The Bluest Eye, um, it's a novel I'd, I'd heard about since graduating from grade school and all these kinds of things. I've always meant to read it. And for some reason, or another, I had never gotten around to it. I read it for the first time 
um, last year in preparation for this concert. And um, it took me a few paragraphs before I was like, this is absolutely it. This is absolutely it. I mean, it hit on a few things that are just personal, bothersome moments for me in America. There are several, but one thing in America that has bothered me more than anything else, and I'm sure this is also part of growing up in Texas, is the term all-American. And I know it's in some ways supposed to be this resultant idea from our concept of being a melting pot and all these other other kinds of things but it's not we don't really have a melting pot we have a bleaching pot here right Mm -hmm. because this idea of forced assimilation to become this melting pot but anyway this idea of all americanism it's great you know blonde hair blue eyes da 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 looks like you came from the midwest da 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 which which again by the way is stunningly similar to Hitler and Nazis' idea of their Herrenrasse. I mean, it's also blonde hair, blue eyes, you know, and I, and I would love to think, oh, wow, what a great coincidence. But it's not, right? I mean, there's a whole history of Nazism and neo-Nazism in our country. I mean, even just a few blocks south of us, Laura, there was a huge, huge rally at Madison Square Garden just a few decades ago, and it was called, like, the All-American something or other. It was a bunch of neo-Nazis sharing their propaganda amongst themselves and it was it got shut down halfway through when people caught on but i mean it was allowed to happen they had to apply to to be in that space so all these things were very very real and so i I came to it from a this idea of all american which is more harmful than anything else right it's not inclusive at all oh sure may may, may jump in on that because you just said something so right on that i just have to applaud you for it (laughs) I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm also like, I'm a first generation American. I do not identify with the history of this country and with that notion of all American. And like, it makes no sense to me. And I think that that's a little bit of what motivated what was the, the freedom in a way of identity politics when we started to say, well, yeah, I'm an American, but I'm this kind of an American because very few Americans identify with this 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 brand. Hmm. And so that's when we became very conscious of all of our multiple identities. That the yeah. problem is the problem is there's a lot of us who are something Americans. Absolutely. And more of us who are something Americans than are the people who think they're the all Americans and they're scared. Exactly. And that's what this ultimately this struggle is about right now that there's more hyphenated peoples who make up this potentially united states although we're pretty disunited now than the people who have this image of what an american is hmm. and they're losing power and control and yeah, they're, it, never gonna, they're never going to realize that identity that they hold on to yeah the problem that has started to arise, though, is that they've gotten smart. I mean, they're, they're going to lose all these battles. But in the meantime, they've divided up a lot of the hyphenated Americanisms. Like, you know, different kinds of Americans are now wary of each other because those guys still have more money and power and they know how to manipulate things, even though they're in the minority. And they've gotten the good guys fighting against each other. But we should all just say, screw that, man. <laughs> we got to fight the all-American guys. So that this beautiful, pluralistic, hyphenated culture can just be, and we can all be different, and we can all share in this vision of a democracy, which is a place that should welcome 
all kinds of people. And we should all have an opportunity to succeed because there's enough to go around. And that's what they're all afraid of. And they're, they've created a real disaster that I hope we can get out of. And that's true. Well, I was just going to quickly say that's what one of the things I appreciated so much about the synopsis of the book Read Dangerously is that there's so much overlap. So it's not a single tracked story, but it's one that tells so many of our stories. At the same time, Damien, while the bluest eye can be seen as specifically about one black woman who wanted to be different, there seems to be application that goes far beyond that specificity. Yeah. And, 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 that's, and that's what makes great art is that sure. there's a, spe- a specific story and an, a universal truth. Yeah. And in, in addition to, to that, let's remember that this hyphenated thing is not accidental. I mean, this isn't just something that happens, happens in conversation. It's on government documents, right? Like when you fill out something to, for your ID card or driver's license, I mean, you have to figure out what box you are. And some people only have the option to fill out that box. And it starts from grade school on. But the other thing about the thing isn't just the all-Americanism. That was the first thing about the book that bothered me. But the other thing is, is that we just have to really remember that as we witnessed in the last election and the two elections before that, when Democrats did well, not just the last one, Black women in this country have been shouldering a, a, a very interesting burden, figuratively, figuratively and literally, right? Not only have our women been raising everybody's children in this country and support, and uh, just let's not forget how much they rallied and literally got so many Democrats like united and all these kinds of things. And this book really illustrates um, just the trials and tribulations of being a Black woman in the country. But the other thing it really, really pointed out that was the most touching thing for me is the, the trauma. It's, it's, it, it, it's, it's a book about Blackness, but it's a book specifically about trauma of being Black in America. It's about the trauma cycle. It's about intergenerational trauma. It's about somatic trauma. Um, and I, I was reading another book at the same time. I finished it right before I started this one by an author Actually, in your neck of the woods, Garrett, uh, he actually, I believe, lives in Minneapolis right now. Um, and he's a social worker and therapist and um, author. And his name is Resma Minikin. And he wrote this book called My Grandmother's Hands that deals with trauma. Because if if the bluest eye isn't filled with anything else, it's a traumatic situation after a traumatic situation that this young girl has to um, endure at the hands of her classmates, her friends, her parents, her society at large, the person who works at the store, it's just over and over and over and again. And she only feels her only way out is to have blue eyes and blonde hair because then she thinks she'll be pretty and people will like her more. And one other thing I wanted to say about this all-American thing that is interesting because I also thought it's the first thing people bring up about Nazism, mm-hmm. how Hitler didn't have you know blonde hair and blue eyes and why it was the big thing. It's not necessarily just about we're praising people who do have them. But remember, there's really only one group of people that even have access to even the chance of having blonde hair and blue eyes. So it's not just about praising this one small like combination of eye color and hair color. It's that like most other races, that which is also the stuff that's an invented thing, don't ever have blonde hair and ever have blue eyes. There's only one group in America that can have a relative or a friend or whatever that even has access to that, right? So it, it's very exclusionary and it's very on purpose. There's only one race on the planet that has a combination of blue, uh, blue eyes and blonde hair as a possibility. But, but going a little further about the bluest eye, it has all those themes in it. But the thing that helped me the most is I'm enjoying all these things that Laura was hinting on because it is a, it, this is a very 
omni problem, right? With this book banning is a thing that affects everyone, no matter where you're from, what your background is. It's something we all need to fight. And I was having moments of despair and losing hope. Like over these last three years during the Trump administration, the pandemic, everyone being fiscally stretched, which brings out the worst in people. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? All these conversations you have to endure. I was really, really being stretched thin on my patience for other people's um, ignorance, intolerance. I can think of some other nicer words, but like it's, it was really problematic and I didn't know what to do. And it wasn't until the very end of the book, Garrett, that there is a situation where uh, through the eyes, the eyes of these children who are the protagonist and the protagonist's sister, she says something in in uh sorry the narrators they say something in in uh referring to the protagonist who is pakola who endures all this tragedy and she points out succinctly that yes people called her ugly yes people called her this but by calling her ugly they made themselves feel more beautiful by calling her stupid they made themselves feel more intelligent and then she goes a little further to say but in fact it did happen because that's all a state of mind so it really just made me it reminded me of things my mother said. People attack other people and people punch down when there is something incredibly wrong with them, within themselves, when they can't figure out what to do within themselves to feel better about themselves. Their alternative is to have to attack other people. There are two ways to be on top. You work hard and you climb or you work hard and you pull people down and push them beneath you. And that's another way to be on top. And she, it was just the end of that. That was the reminder that was like, you know what? I don't know if I'm as optimistic as Laura and that we, we're all going to be okay. Because maybe we are going to win the war. But these battles that we're losing are so problematic. And these things, because remember this trauma works. That little kid, and maybe we're going to win the war, but that little six-year-old who lost that battle in class takes those scars with them the rest of their life. Like it, they don't necessarily just go away. You tell a child that they are wrong or ugly or incorrect or don't belong when they're six. They remember that when they're 26, they cheat, they treat their children that way when they're 36. Like it, it just doesn't go away. And I think that's why I get so worked up about the immediacy of trying to fix these problems now. And I get, gosh, Laura, next time we hang out, I'm going to try to absorb some of your optimism and really try to take some solace in that like maybe in the long run it's going to work out but my ass just cannot see past tomorrow sometimes i cannot see past my niece and nephew who are these little brown mixed kids in school you know let's just not forget we're not that far away that like not only were these standards of beauty given to us and like encouraged to attain them but like black people were doing things like like pouring lie all over ourselves and bleaching our skin. I mean, not just too long ago, that boy, the wrestling team had his hair shaved off yep. because they didn't think that his dreadlocks or his braids were acceptable at the time. I mean, now box braids are acceptable, but I remember growing up when people couldn't wear braids to school because it was unkempt or whatever the words they want. It was too black. Right. And it's all these things. And so all these things upset me and they were so parallel to my life within the bluest eye these things that happened to this young girl and her father and her mother and her grandparents because she tony morrison is brilliant in outlining how all of these things weren't just one little girl and it didn't start with her she's very brilliant in outlining how it's been generational but she offers this little glimmer of light at the end 
that I was able to take with me and kind of keep going a little longer. Because listen, I was, I mean, ideas of secession and all these things. I was like, let their asses go. And if I don't, if they don't, I will. Like, I was really like, I don't even know how to interact with certain people. I didn't have the patience. I didn't have the knowledge. I didn't have the grace how to interact with some of these people in America right now. And the bluest eye in the last pair, last few paragraphs, really without, you know, any kind of exaggeration, you know, no, no hyperbole detected in this following statement. It really reignited my little tiny candle of hope that maybe, like Laura said, maybe we are going to win and it'll be okay. Cause it is hard to see that finish line past all the bullshit that's happening. Like it really, really is. I I just, I mean, we're getting into a pretty heavy existential conversation here, but. Hmm. Is it existential though? Or is it actually, actually applicable in real life right now? But it's about our existence as human beings, because I actually think, unfortunately, that it, it isn't possible to think that we're going to end up with a, a better world in a utopian world. because. First of all, we don't learn from history. So it's not like we can say, I mean, my mother's in her 90s and she grew up in Europe and living in bomb shelters and had a lot of people killed around her. And she remembers the, the burning of all the books. And she said, she's frightened for this country now. She said, this country is falling into all of the same structural problems yeah. that led to World War II. And we're and the, seeing it around the world. And that's part of the problem, and, though, right? Laura, and, is, and, that's and, why they're and, burning And it's these because books. we don't, but we don't learn from history as human beings because we're kind of stupid. We only learn from our own experience. So we're muddling through it and we're making the same mistakes. And we're going to keep doing it. And there's going to be ongoing pushing forward to making a better world and then push back. And then a little, I mean, I don't want to quote Martin Luther King Jr. or Obama, who then quotes from him. But, you know, it's that long arc and it's two steps forward, one step back. And we're inching along. We're not fixing it. But what I do, I always try to hold on to this, which is and I'm, I shouldn't just use him. But there's there's there was one Hitler and a handful of disgusting followers and then a bunch of disempowered people who didn't. They kind of had a choice, but they kind of didn't. Hmm. And they were. Millions and millions and millions of decent people. Hmm. I mean, here's the two. I'm going to say two things about that. One, I do think sometimes we, um, we as the American body politic, I think sometimes we take solace in these things our politicians say, including Obama and other people. You have to because you have to keep people, you have to keep giving people hope. Part of his job is to give hope. I don't even know if he believes it. He may or may not, but his job as Paul, as as the president, is to say that they, they are the comforter in chief and they are supposed to give hope. But I don't know how much I can keep worrying about an eon from now or even ten years from now. Like that does nothing for our children right now. For me personally, I, I can't feel that way. And then the other thing I was going to say about that is there isn't just one Hitler. And I don't think Hitler and these other kinds of leaders are surrounded by a bunch of sheep. I mean, sometimes I think we give this this blessing and this idea of like either ignorance or or kind of, uh, what's that when you, or complacence. I think sometimes we grant that badge to people and can keep them to being way more innocent than what they are. No one in this country is ignorant. 
We've got the internet, TV, newspapers, some books that haven't been banned. We've got word of mouth, neighbors, everyone knows what's going on. It is not an accident for people to tolerate it, to encourage it. This is, this is, these are purposeful actions. You know what I mean? It's not just these high-ranking politicians who've all gone to school and saying ignorant things that we know they know what they're doing. There are people, your neighbors, they all people know good and bad. It doesn't take uh, Ivy League education to know right and wrong. We as humans can know it, and everyone knows when they're doing wrong. You're you're using the word complacency is the actual fatal flaw of our society because as horrible as it is, and as as much inequity as there is, both historic mm-hmm. and contemporary, that's structurally built in. The, the those power people who hold the wealth and make the rules dangle just enough that people get complacent. So even though they're really starving and they really don't have health care and they really live in shitholes, they have a credit card and they can go and get something and they, they're deluded. And that's the complacency that makes everybody passive. And if mm. if all of the workers who are, you know, I mean, really, if I'm not going to say the 1%, but if 90% of this country said, we're going to go on a general strike, everything would stop and mm. we could have a peaceful revolution. But well, people are one, complacent and they won't do it. I want to say one last thing about complacency, though. I, I, just, I just want us to remember, everyone doesn't even have access to complacency. Like everyone does not have a credit card. Everyone doesn't even have access to those things. And, I, and I'm, not, I'm, talk, I'm not talking about the 80% right now, right? Because I believe you. I think that's the middle. We, yes. But everyone doesn't have that option. Like, we can't all just go on strike. We can't all do those things. So it, that's, and that's when it becomes a problem. I keep saying that if, 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 if the, 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 the right thinking, meaning left-leaning, power <laughs> Hold on. Right. I know these terms of, would just say to all the all the minimum wage workers, all the paid off the books in cash with no rights workers, all the underpaid people in not-for-profits, like at all levels, from the fringe who are struggling to just survive to people who are just working hard and they can't really advance. And while that top layer is stealing more and more and more, if the really well-off foundations, political leaders, billionaires who have the right humanistic thoughts would just say, go on strike. We'll pay all your bills while you go on strike, but don't go to work and don't service all those people. I, I, I hear what you're saying. It would I hear what you're I mean, saying. This, this is a, a, a thought, you know, this is a thought problem. But A, not, but a, what, happens, but a what happens when everything collapses? Where who 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 loses the most on that? But two, I, I will I will put this out there and I will challenge you both to this thought. And I could be completely left off. This is how Damien feels on Wednesday, May 17th. I may feel differently tomorrow. But most people don't do as far as doing the right thing because they don't want to. Mm-hmm. Like just like you said, most people could do X, Y, and Z. They could do X, Y, and Z. The biggest thing from keeping them from doing it is because they don't want to. Trump didn't elect himself. You know what I'm saying? Like all these, all these policemen didn't get off from killing people, all these crimes we could list, they didn't forgive themselves. Like people don't do because they don't want to do. Like we have to get people to want to do it first. It's just like this whole thing about equity we're talking about. Like as far as we like making things equal and stuff, remember it's not just giving people who don't have, people who have have to be willing to give away for things to be there and no one wants to do that. That's why things aren't moving. People don't want to give things away. 
I mean, it's it's people don't want people don't want change to happen at the rate we need it to happen because if everyone did want it to happen at that rate, it would, right? I mean, we can all figure out a way to all watch the Super Bowl, right? We can all figure out a way, like we can all figure that out. Yeah. But like coming coming to giving equity to un- underserved people or treating women as we treat men, pay, equal pay, equal pay could happen overnight. They don't want it to happen. Well, that's kind of what I'm saying. I think yeah, I think we're agreeing in the same way. I'm just adding one little smaller thing because I just want to make sure that I yeah, don't know that, 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 kind of a we, ha- we do if there was the right way to frame it mm. so that people were not scared to death and realize that they could get to the other side without starving to death or watching their family die or getting killed, you know, either from starvation or from violence. But if they could just, sh- you know, truth to power, we're not going to be part of the system anymore because you're, you're, you're screwing us and you have too much and there's enough to go around, but we can never, we can't get there. I mean, that that's. Laura, you and I are going to have, this conversation again next time I see each other because we've got so much more to talk about. This I have so many questions for you. <laughs> and, and and let me let me sort of wrap this up by by introducing these two things. So you know, Laura, you did bring the name James Baldwin into the conversation, and I'm thinking about you know his famous quote about time, how things you know take time, but how much time and and whose time. I'm also. Yeah. Thinking about you know one of the uh, one of the uh, Buddhist ideas that I meditate on a lot, this idea of expedient means, this idea that there is a way for us to get from point A to point B without having to just rely on time or or things naturally changing, but actually being active toward the goal that we're uh, working toward. I guess my question to to close is music the means you know at the end of the day we're talking about these conversations realized through musical performance i definitely understand and would affirm that it is a means but when we talk about actually getting to this reality that we want to get to and and dismantling all of these violent things that we're we're seeing what what is the means how do, how do we get there without relying on well with time we'll get there uh, i'll start with you laura There isn't one means. And so, you know, if I could use the energy that I put into writing a piece of music and that same energy would create world peace, I'd stop writing music and I'd make world peace. Right. Um, You know, I, I read the news every day and, you know, I mean, I, I, this is only because friends of mine just told me the story. And so it's right on the front of my mind. We're reading about the war in Ukraine and it could lead to an escalation that could lead us into a world war and a collapse. So there's, there's the concern that people are getting killed every day. And then there's that longer time concern that that this could be the end. Well, I, I get distressed about that every day and I just live my life and I, you know, water my plants and I cook my food and I talk to my mom and I try to be a good wife to my wife and, you know, and I write music and that's my little small life. But I have friends who actually went and brought over two Ukrainian families and they spent all their money. They don't have enough. So they gathered together other people. They got an apartment, they got furniture, they got this this family cars, the family can't own a car, 
So they bought the car and gave them a fake loan so that they could register it. They've got them in language lessons. They've taken care of their health. They're not, they're, they're sacrificing and it's like right up front. Now, I, I don't know that I would do that. Maybe I'm too selfish or lazy or I'm too bad at filling out forms. They said the amount of paperwork is extraordinary. So I do what I can do. Like if we all take one thing, and this is a line from another political work that I am involved in that's cross-disciplinary about climate change. We can't fix everything. We're just, I'm just one little person and I'm not a politician and I don't have power. So I do my little life to the best of my ability. But if I take one thing and make it mine and commit to it for the common good, and everybody can do that, we can make things better. I don't know that we can fix everything because I think it's ongoing and there's always going to be this evil and this greed that causes problems. And we keep pushing and fighting. And then we get rid of that group of problems. And then the next one emerges and we try to fix that because there is this bad energy on that side of the spectrum that damages things. So, you know, when, when Olivier Messiaen was in a Silesian labor camp during World War II, he wrote the quartet for the end of time for four musicians. He was one of them for the broken instruments that were there. They had no heat. They premiered this piece in January 1941 to several thousand starving prisoners, who many of whom ended up dying, in the cold. And that piece is one of the most profound utterances of the ugliness and the beauty both of human existence. And the millions and millions of people who have been touched by it since then, there's a value to that. Did it, did it specifically save a life of somebody in the camp who was starving that day? Probably not. But you can't say it's not valuable. So like we all do our bit and it would be great if we could put all those bits together and overwhelm and suppress the, the evil. But unfortunately, we're a screwed up species and there's evils. They're evil humans and they seize power. While we're trying to just be nice little people in our local level, there are people trying to make things worse. I can't fix that myself, but I want to make the world I live in a better place in the ways that I can. And being conscious, thoughtful, and active is the best that I can do. You know, Damien, when I, when I think about the quartet for the end of time, I'm also thinking about the way in which Nina Simone described Strange Fruit as the ugliest song that she ever had to sing. And yet there's so much power and beauty in a weird way connected to it. We could say similar things about Mississippi Goddamn, you know, and a number of, of works in the so-called classical repertoire. But, you know, in your, your, your final word on, you know, music as one of those means. And I guess you kind of touched on this already, you know, is your art making enough? I guess as we continue to think about the way that we engage the conversation and the whys of our present, how are you moving forward, you know, after this project, thinking about the what's and the and the how's toward what, you know, we're, we're working toward a more peaceful, a more equitable society? 
Yeah. So I'm going to do something I never do. I'm going to give you a short, succinct answer to your first question. <laughs> um, the answer to your first question, do I think music is the means? I'm going to simply say yes. Hmm. And it's not just on my opinion. I'm going to say it because I've seen it happen before. Like in our worst times on planet Earth, in times of war, this and the other, a popular artist will give us an anthem. And even it, whether it be We Are the World, you know, I mean, I, I, I bet you, you know what? The person who's probably going to save our world is Beyonce. Like, it's probably just somebody with that. I mean, somehow music does cross lines, right? It does. I mean, whether it's just the rhythmic of a drum that's very similar, reminiscent of the beating heart. I mean, we have all kinds of studies about these kinds of things and waves and what the actual somatic effects they have on us. But the less heady answer is yes. I mean, music has been the only thing in my life that I have seen and witnessed cross all these kinds of lines literally stop people in their tracks, literally make people understand things they couldn't have understood before. And this conversation actually got me to this answer because like I said, the last time we spoke, I was not sure. I mean, I wasn't even sure at the beginning of this. I was more sure after our concert on Monday hmm. and I'm even more sure now, you know? I mean, just because we've seen it happen. So we know that's going to happen again. I mean, musicians hold a special place in history, in mythology, in reality, whether you go back to Orpheus or you go back to some other figures that some people won't recognize I, I say their name because they're from the African canon and not the European one or American one. We're just not as familiar with that, right? Laura, you probably know that you do all that work in Africa though. But um, it's, yeah, I would say yes. And it is the thing. And like, I just had a few conversations after our concert from complete strangers who said things to me. And it was, it was one of those kinds of conversations where you're like, I love hearing all these thoughts, but we literally have to be out of here in five minutes. And I still have to pack up these crotales and change clothes. And, and you're just like, I have to go. But they were, they were just, there was nothing more than they wanted to do than to share their positive energy with me out of gratitude that I shared something with them. It didn't matter if I was speaking on something specific on a topic that they didn't necessarily relate to. The sound of my voice and the sound of these crotales and the sound of just my feet walking on the stage did something to them. And I was like, yes. It is the answer. What I'm doing does make a difference. And I needed that because I was questioning it like nobody's business. You know, I question it like it, I really needed that. And maybe I needed this question to help solidify that. But yeah, I do think music is the answer because it's been the answer before, whether it's hymns in church. I mean, every church service, everything solidified with song and music. And maybe that is just a solution. You know, maybe we need more anthems about, I don't know, maybe we need more talking about i I, lo I love that you you feel that positivity about making music and making beauty because it is you know milan kundera once said even in times of greatest distress human beings organize their lives according to the law of greatest beauty like we seek beauty and goodness and the the, the broken people who don't do a lot of damage mm -hmm. but most of us actually do we want it to be calm and beautiful and shared. The and it's also, but it's also the comfort value that I want to say. Like while we're fighting this fight, like you can't fight without rest, right? You can't move unless you fuel your body. You can't move unless you sleep. And you can't think about solutions to this if you don't let your soul rest. And I really do take um, a lot of consolation in that like the art that I create gives people that I don't even know some kind of solace that they can just gather themselves for the most, for the rest of the thinking that they're going to have to do and planning and protesting all that kind of stuff. So yeah, yeah. it's, it, sorry, that's all. That was all. That was period. No, 
the year, a few years after I lived in West Africa and Ghana, I lived in Eastern Europe, and that was a whole other set of cultures and conflicts because it was soon after the end of the Soviet Union and Eastern European countries were redefining themselves, no longer hyphenating and finding their their cultural roots. But there was so much poverty and devastation that we were seeing. And I was running an international music academy and we went into Croatia under human rights watch protection to the bombed out Serb cultural center to give the first live concert since the bombing stopped. And they had to protect us. They thought we might get shot that night because of the two sides coming together for the first time. And it was the first concert in three and a half, three and a half years, I think. Now, Laura, aren't you about to do another one where they're talking about protection? You stay in these, uh, yeah, you I know. To stay I, in these little dangerous situations. I do. I do. <laughs> Your wife must but be worried. We, we, she, she just rolls her eyes. But we, <laughs> we went in to give this concert, and there was so much tension because the Serbs and the Croats had been killing each other, and they were sitting in a room together listening to music. And at mm. the end, people came up, and they were literally like grabbing my face and the musicians' faces, and hugging us and crying said, yeah. we haven't had any music for three years. Maybe we can go forward. And we don't, unfortunately, we don't have to even go that far for these tragic situations. I mean, Minneapolis, New York, yeah, Florida. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure if we, when we log off here, and I'm sure when we like, you know, check our media of choice, I'm sure there'll be 14 more reasons why we feel like we need to come and make some solace for people. Just so you know, on my desk that I stare at every day is a little post-it which says, an artist's duty is to reflect the times. Nina Simone. This is why I like you, Laura. And I'm being serious. We're going to continue this conversation when I see you next. little bit there from the work by Lara Kaminsky, inspired by the Nazar Afisi uh, novel. A real pleasure to chat with them and a pleasure for me to get to share that conversation with y'all. They promised me part two of that dialogue the next time I'm in the city. So I'm definitely looking forward to that as well. Uh, so if you want more information on Damien or Lara Ensemble Pie, I will have links uh, in the description. Be sure to uh, check out all of their work and to support new music that speaks to the times, just as Nina Simone uh, inspired us all to do. So I was riding so high in New York that Gravity did its damnedest to pull me down for a minute. Uh, this work of equity and liberation in the arts comes with a lot of people who want to do the work and end up being a little 
harmful along the way, even impeding some of that work. So I'm going to highlight how I had an opportunity to traverse uh, that little challenge and keep my spirits high for this week's Triloquy. Uh, We're going to transition into the Triloquy with a tune that I kept repeating in my earbuds on the subway in New York. This is a song called Wildfires, music by Salt, S-A-U-L-T, if you've never heard of this artist. Really beautiful track that highlights the spirit and direction of American classical, really speaking to the times as we all should be doing in uh, American music. All of that to get us into this week's Triloquy. Here's a bit of it, Wildfires by Salt. a phenomenal song shout out to salt hope y'all will check them out but uh to the triloquy for this week let me offer a a real quick recap for context so back in 2020 as many of y'all know i was let go from a pretty big radio job because i didn't believe in their programming direction or their programming decisions and their incoming music director decided to write a think piece about why I was wrong for what I did and how folks like me just need to behave if we actually want to make a difference in the field. I'll um, I, maybe I guess I'll throw that in the description if if y'all want to see that. But the author of that piece uh, had an interaction with my partner while I was away. I understand that there was a talk about how great my impact is in the field and the direction classical radio needs to go. Um, and the conversation uh, that was had with him, what was said to him was, well, if you want to appreciate the work that Garrett is doing, you can let him know instead of shitting on him uh, to get a few clicks on your blog. I'm, <laughs> I'm sure that's not what was said verbatim, but that, that's the spirit of it based on what I understand. Lo- love and hip hop, that we could have love and classical as well. But anyway, so I'm getting this news an hour or so before I have to get on stage in New York, being the classical agitator MC that I'm known to be in certain spaces. Uh, And I was feeling a bit frustrated. People love to tell you how much you're needed and how important your work is in private. But when the machine is watching, it's a different story, right? I'm sure many of y'all know exactly what I'm talking about there, the DMs and support and as opposed to the public statements of support. Anyway, I had a mind to get on social media and to do my own mudslinging or even uh, to send a few rude text messages to certain people. But I started to think about my fortune. I I already told y'all about the people that I was getting to meet uh, in New York and how I'm always on the also on the ground supporting composers and helping music makers' dreams come true and be uh, realized. These are opportunities that I don't take for granted. Um, And especially to get to do all this work for audiences that are interested in a renewed approach, dare I say decolonized approach to classical music. 
uh, will throwing bad energy into the world come back to me as positive energy, or should I try to find a way to turn this poison into medicine? That that's what I started to ask myself before I just reacted. Uh, we were down at the New School. I was down at the New School in New York uh, when all of this came down. Uh, so I found an empty room and I did some chanting. I did my Nam Yoho Renge Kyo's, and by the time I was done, I decided that only positive woo woo <laughs> is going to circle back around to me in a positive way. So I called down and had a great rest of, of my trip, you know, took just face that bit of trauma head on and turned it into the fuel I needed to continue uh, the, the high, <laughs> proverbially speaking, uh, that I was on over in the city. I'm sharing this because there's a lot of shit going on out there in classical music. Apparently, there's a Negro spiritual competition that only awarded white vocalists this year, and there are even black folks saying that that's okay. That's another conversation. Uh, the new League of American Orchestra report is out, which I think I'm going to talk about next week. Spoiler alert, classical music is still marginalizing black and brown folks, but you know, what's new? Again, I'll get into more of that next week. I could go down the list, but at the end of the day, we got to do something good, something positive. This isn't to say that we should respond to injustice and continue marginalization and a colonized approach to classical music with a soft hand. I guess really what I'm saying is that there has to be a way of creating value around these issues. Poison into medicine, just as I was talking about with Ted Comet uh, before and his uh, late wife, how she did that. We, we have to figure out how to do a little bit of that to make this change, because that's that's what I see as the future. We've done it a certain way for a while. We're still getting the same data, the same marginalization, the same practices. It's time to flip it around and see if maybe positive approaches uh, can can do something. Let's take the time to teach. I think, uh, and look, I understand that a lot of people believe that it's not our job to teach people how to be whatever or how to do whatever. Uh, there's Google. That, that That's what a lot of people see, but that's what a lot of people say. But I don't see another way of creating a more equitable world without doing a little bit of that work. Let's take the time to practice our patience and to figure out a way to publicly and privately respond to injustice in our field and in the world around us in a way that points us toward actual progress, measurable progress. I know that it can really feel good to tell someone off. And and that's, this isn't me saying that there isn't a place and time for that under certain contexts, but there, there has to be that bridge building and that dialogue that can get everyone facing the correct direction. Uh, what's most important to me is that we have to take the time to really stand in our values. Are our values hate and division or are our values equity? and liberation. I don't believe that we can liberate classical music, decolonize classical music without some cross-cultural dialogue and collaboration. And for people of color, for marginalized people, that requires us to take our racial drama, our racial trauma, you know, that is real and that is valid, and to challenge ourselves to flip that around and use that as the fuel to engage some of these naysayers, engage some of these white people who are out here doing the wrong thing so that all of us can go there together. I challenge each of you listening to reach across whatever aisle you consider an aisle between you and other people's way of thinking in this field of so-called classical music and see what value you can 
create there. Um, and give all your sh- uh, haters a shout out. Shout out to all my haters. I love y'all. Thank you for listening. You inspire me across past, present, and future. Uh, shout out to everyone who's pushing in their own way to shift this classical industry into something that matters and can be engaging for all of us. Um, and shout out to all of you for uh, joining me this week and listening to yet another rant. Happy Juneteenth. That's going to happen between now and the next time I talk to y'all. Black people, do your best to do nothing. <laughs> this June 19th, I know that I'm going to do my best to do nothing. And I will talk to y'all again next week. Thanks so much for tuning in. Peace. Peace.